Rather than listen to me in this open, I want you to hear the words of my guest because I guarantee you he will have you at hello. Here's his quote. There's no one world. There are six billion understandings of it. And if you change one person's understanding of it, what they're capable of, how much they care about it, of one person's understanding of how powerful an agent of change they can be, and of how powerful an agent of change they can be in their own lives, you can change everything. End quote. Got you hello, didn't it? Time to redefine, reframe leadership. That's what we're talking about today. It's not just about the person elected to be in charge, whatever that means. It's not just about the executive director or the board chair. It's about the person who raises their hand. It's about everyday moments. Perhaps you're one of the six million people who know my guest's story, told in one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Leadership, sometimes it's about offering somebody a lollipop. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Called one of the most dynamic speakers in the world, Drew Dudley is on a mission to help people unlearn some dangerous lessons about leadership. As the founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership, he has helped top organizations around the world increase their leadership capacity. His clients have included McDonald's, Amex, J.P. Morgan Chase, the United Way, and more than 100 colleges and universities. Prior to this, Drew spent eight years as the lead of one of Canada's largest leadership development programs at the University of Toronto. Drew is also the best-selling author of This Is Day One, a practical guide to leadership that matters. It debuted at number six on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. As a speaker, Drew has delivered keynotes to more than 250,000 people across five continents. His TED Talk, Everyday Leadership, also known as The Lollipop Moment, was voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Drew, what a joy to have you here with me to offer advice and insight to our leaders listening today. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, my pleasure, really. So um, what drew you, Drew, into the leadership space? Now, you made me promise not to refer to you as an expert, and I'm pretty obedient. So what was your path to becoming this guy who seems to know a lot of stuff about what leadership looks like and shares all that stuff with other people? Well, maybe it's because I have a long and illustrious history of making people seem to think that I know a lot about anything. <laughs> uh, but honestly, you know what it was? It was an accident. And I think if you talk to a lot of people who find themselves doing something they love, they will tell you that the path that they laid out isn't exactly what didn't exactly end up where they thought it was going to. And for me, I was always supposed to be a lawyer. I, I did really well in high school. I did really well in university. And if you do that, if you get good grades 
and you like science, you're supposed to be a doctor. And if you don't like science, you're supposed to be a lawyer. And I love to talk. And of course, all those law and legal and lawyer TV shows convince us that the law is super fun and interesting and sexy, uh, wherein I started to realize there's a lot of paperwork in this job. <laughs> and, and you know what it was? I tried to impress a girl. And I wanted to stick around one summer on my old campus when I was a university student. She was sticking around to be a research assistant for some professor. And I ended up taking a job I didn't want so that I could stick around and try to impress a girl. And it ended up, I think the girl's name was Megan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very much in love with Megan. Obviously, it didn't work out. But what actually happened was I took a job running a fundraiser as part of the portfolio. And I never liked fundraising. To me, fundraising was always chocolate-covered almonds in front of a liquor store. That's what I thought of as as what (laughs) fundraising was. And I had no interest in, in doing this, but I liked the girl. And I went off to a national conference. I met these extraordinary individuals who were part of this charity. We had taken over the worst charity in the country. Uh, well, not the worst charity, my apologies, the worst campaign in the country. Good. It had made 250 bucks compared to the best, which was 144,000. And we took it over and I worked with an incredible team, sort of embraced this philosophy that when you're dumb, surround yourself with smart people. And when you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. Mm-hmm. And we ended up making $15,000 and I was hooked. I was so engaged in trying to actually create impact in the world that all of a sudden writing papers about the world was significantly less interesting to me. So I stumbled into leadership through this charity campaign, ended up becoming a, you know, a major regional provincial director and then the national chair ended up as a result of that, starting to develop workshops to help our volunteers. The Dean of Students at the University of Toronto saw me in one of those workshops and reached out and said, Hey, we want to talk about creating a leadership program that engages young people where they are, as opposed to this deep academic theoretical approach. Interesting. And I said, I don't think I'm qualified to run anything at a university. And he said, that's my call. Come and try. And eight years later, I was running the leadership development program there. It led to the development of a process that eventually people were so interested in hearing about. I I had to leave my job, which was sad to leave the students, but it's been an exciting 10 years since then. But I was trying to impress a girl and that led me to something totally different that pulled me away from looking at the world from the outside and realizing that all the things I'd been trying to accumulate and acquire to look good on paper didn't seem to matter nearly as much as the stuff we actually started to do. So. And- a completely weird meandering path to a job I never thought I'd have. Uh, you know, I, I think most people have weird meandering paths. I think it's a myth that people don't have those. But I wanted to, I wanted to, to rewind you a little bit. Um, hooked, you got hooked raising money. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of folks who listen for whom raising money is maybe the hardest part, or maybe the, um, or they certainly don't think of themselves, if you know, we have lots of development directors who are listen to our podcast, who don't necessarily fancy themselves as leaders because they increase the resources of an organization. And I wondered if you could speak to that because, you, you know, your path to leadership, as you say, began with stumbling into this particular organization and raising money for it successfully. So connect those dots for me, Drew. 
You know, what's interesting is that I don't know if I'd actually say that I got hooked by raising money. I think I got hooked by having impact. Right. And it just so happened that when you set out to have impact, I kind of thought that we weren't going to raise money. We had been so bad at it historically that I assumed, look, there's not probably going to be any money in this. But what we can try to do is start to change the culture and start to integrate this idea that we as a collective students could actually create a really major impact. But it was going to take two or three years for us to change the culture. Then the money would come. Right. We just ended up, I'm not going to say fluking into it, but let's say advancing the culture much faster than we anticipated. That's what got me hooked. And I also think that when you talked about the TED Talk, I'm sure we'll get into that later about the lollipop moment. That was actually part, that actually emerged as a result of me trying to convince people just like you described that they actually were leaders. Right. One, and I'm sure that many people watching this know, when you set out with a goal, you know, when you say, okay, this is how much we're going to raise or this is what we need to raise, we got people on that sort of training weekend really whipped up into a frenzy about doing this. But of course, when you've got fundraisers that make $150,000 in a day, and then you've got the Memorial School of Nursing in Newfoundland that has 42 people on their team, and they submit $1,200, they start to feel as if we are less than. But when you, when you operate at your top capacity, if your top capacity is not the same as somebody else, that is still you operating at your top capacity. But what happened was we would lose these volunteers. They would be so engaged, and throughout the summer, they would be really fired up. And we, what we did is we train in May, people plan for the summer, and then in September we executed this, these fundraisers across the country at 62 right. colleges and universities. And if a group didn't hit their goal, we never heard from them again because they were embarrassed and they thought that we were angry at them. And the reason I started talking about impact over bottom line is because I wanted these individuals to know that how they chased their goals was as impactful as whether or not they reach their goals. It's not the goals you set, it's how you behave in pursuit of them. Mm -hmm. For instance, I wanted them to realize, and we'll talk about the story later, but I wanted them to realize that how they behave in trying to mobilize people to support something good really has a long-term effect they may never see. For instance, there was one particular extraordinary young man who cooked up this incredible idea for a fundraiser. He lived in a town with a big lake in the middle, and he organized a massive fundraiser where teams from all over town, corporate, not-for-profit, had to build a boat uh, with less than $100. Okay. And then they raced them. And, of course, it was chaos, and everything sank, and people fell over. It was a great time. <laughs> But they didn't come anywhere close to what they hoped to raise. It was a bit of a disaster the first year. And I know for five or six years after that, he always looked back on that endeavor as a huge failure. But six years later, I'm at the national conference. Now I'm not you know, a, a delegate anymore. I'm the national chair. And there is a young woman from his school talking about the best fundraiser in the country at that time, which was this boat race. Right. And he had moved away and had no idea. Yep. And so I think what I tell individuals who don't see themselves as leaders because it's tied so closely to how much money they make is that often the money you end up making for an organization comes in sometimes well after you're gone. Yep. And that it's the behavior in pursuit of those goals that really builds. And if you behave in a way that focuses on impact and culture, 
Yes, I know it's hard when professionally it's a not-for-profit. You can't consistently fail to hit a certain level of resources. But often what you're laying as a groundwork is going to be used to raise an awful lot of money down the road. And that's really what I want to get at people. And that's what really started making me realize is that I thought my value as a leader and how I should be evaluated was on that you know, we made 15000 we made $20,000. Right, or whatever and, the outcome of the thing is, right? Yeah, but when people talk to me then and now about the impact this particular campaign had on them, it's never the announcement of the amount. Mm -mm. It is, honestly, it's the two in the morning building donation boxes, or it's that, you know, successful sponsor that came in and we all get a chance to celebrate that. I think that what happened was uh, previous years it had been all about how much we had at the end and we partied at the end. And I think what happened in this time is that we partied a lot along the way. Now, it helps to be 21 years old and to own a bar. But ultimately, <laughs> what we did is we broke it down into these great celebrations. And when you're 21 years old, you will find any excuse to go out and drink a bunch of beer and totally. celebrate. Totally. And somewhere along the way, we lose that. And it starts to be at the end of this quarter, or at the end of this year, that's when we'll evaluate whether we deserve to celebrate. So, and I wish we could go back to that. So I think it's interesting, Drew, um, that, uh, you know, that conversation about leadership, and and I and I'm sure that your concept of leadership has evolved as you have evolved. I mean, I think that's true for me as well. And and um, this guy Drew Dudley, I don't know if you know him, but he suggested that I ask this question. Um, and he said he, he he suggested that I think about um, chapters of a book. So I think we should try this. What do you think, Drew Dudley? I'm all for it. All right. But, yeah, because I've heard good things about him. Um, so the, the question is this. So riddle me this, Batman. Divide your adventure of exploring leadership into three or four chapters. What would each of these chapters be titled? And can you give me a very brief synopsis of each chapter? And if you asked me that question, I might answer it myself. Uh, and I'll, you, I, I promise to be an active listener while you answer the question rather than focusing on the answer that I will give. Certainly. I, I'm going to assume uh, and, and accept as a guarantee that uh, there will be a quid pro quo that when I answer, you will. Yes. Um, yes, Mr. Dudley. Yes. I also I also said, it'll be this fat man. And I was just like, yeah, all right. Right on the, right <laughs> on the nose. Um, all right. Yeah. I think that if I was to sort of break it down into three, everything, everything now is a trilogy. And so I look at it like this. If I go back, I think chapter one is called Tell Me That I Matter. And it's for a lot, it's the same as for a lot of people listening, is the first 20 years of your life is you constantly trying to prove that you matter to other people, all right? There's really two ways as a young person that you end up getting patted on the back. It's through academic success or through athletic success. And for me, my whole life in chapter one was lived for other people I hadn't met yet. I got I tried to get good grades for university admissions counselors I hadn't met yet. And then grad school counselors hadn't met them yet. Uh, then the first person who would hire me hadn't met them yet. My decisions and my priorities and my stress was all about how well I could impress people who had never met me okay. and wouldn't meet me for the future. And for me, it was all about, here, teacher, tell me I'm good. Here's your 99. And here, coach, tell me I'm good because I'm working three times as hard as everybody else. And here, mom and dad, here's my report cards. Tell me I'm worth something. For a lot of the time when we're young, we are never taught to try to assess ourselves. It is always about how well you are evaluated by other people. 
And one of the ways to point it, and you said, be brief, and you should know from the first two questions, that's the biggest challenge for me. Uh, if you ask someone under the age of five, why do you matter? Like, check out the answers that you give. If you're listening to this and you have a kid, ask your kids why they matter. The ones under the age of five give you answers that melt your heart. One woman asked her son and he said, because I'm a hug monster and then leapt all over her. I love that. Something happens when we turn five. We go away to school and we stop believing that why we matter is up to us to determine. It's supposed to be evaluated by someone else. Right. And that was chapter one. Okay, where are we? Desperately seeking out. Okay. Tell Chap me that I matter. Uh, chapter two. I don't matter, uh, but my work does is chapter two. And what happened when you get a little bit older and sometimes your professors and your teachers and the accolades aren't enough, or you start, I started to feel as if it was all a sham. And what happens was when you create an identity that is incredibly entirely tied to what you accomplish, first my grades and my scholarships, and then whether you're on the Dean's list and you're the head of this charity or that, I did not believe that I mattered. And so what I needed to do was always be a massively high achiever because I felt the only reason anyone valued me was because of what I could accomplish. Right. So in chapter one, my leadership is determined by how well I please others. In chapter two, my leadership is entirely about what I accomplish. And at the whole time I'm doing it, not because it makes me feel good as much as because I am desperate and scared of what will happen if I don't do it. That's right. chapter two. Chapter three is plan to matter. And that really started as I began to leave the University of Toronto and talk about this process, the day one leadership process, the identification, definition, and living of daily values. Because I tell people, my work is about trying to help people define the things that they want to define them. Because I found that individuals who can't do that, to say, these are the values I stand for, here's what they mean, and here's the proof I'm living them, they have trouble answering the question, why do you matter? Mm -hmm. And for me, the entire thing I work on now is about helping people create a process to which they can stick that makes them believe they matter. And so chapter one, tell me I matter. Chapter two, I don't matter, but my work does. And now chapter three, where it's all about planning to matter and giving ourselves credit for every time we actively do it. It's not being cocky. It's recognizing your impact. And so those are the three chapters. Now, if we want to live like the 21st century, we can break the last part of the trilogy up into two different movies. That's fine. <laughs> uh, whatever's going to make us the most money, right? Um, good. I think this is a fantastic exercise. I, actually, I, I know you know people scoff at icebreakers and team builders, but these these kinds of conversations really do... Uh, force people to think more deeply. Just listening to you, listening to you describe your three chapters um, was um, made me introspective. Uh, oh, so I guess I should go next. Yeah, please. So I was thinking about this question earlier because I actually, you know, kind of wrote this script. Right? Um, I'm not. In some ways, I'm not sure I had a book until I came out. I, I, I don't know where it was. I, I think everything, uh, the, the, everything before that feels like preamble or um, Dorothy in the black and white house. And everything after that feels like, uh, of course it's hilarious that I'm talking about coming out and Dorothy at the same sentence. Um, 
for those of you who don't know, there's a code for uh, a gay code is friends of Dorothy. Um, so I think that my, my first chapter is, is actually, uh, I'm going to use one word for each chapter, authenticity. That I actually, um, in the first chapter of my book, more as an adult in my early 20s, um, became, I, I recognized the power of authenticity. And what I had missed by not, what were the, the puzzle pieces that were missing for me before that. Um, the second chapter, um, I think I would call advocate because um, between, so, you know, obviously my, 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 my book would be very long, <laughs> but if I can give you a digest of it, that my wife and I decided to have kids, that uh, that was pretty groundbreaking in the 1980s. And I was not legally connected to my wife's biological children. I was the catcher, not the birther, right? And so we filed a lawsuit in the state of New Jersey, and I became the f so my kids became the first kids in the state of New Jersey to legally have two moms. And it was a precedent-setting case in marriage equality um, because it was obviously pre-marriage equality. And, um, and I realized that if I was going to be – the moment I became a mom, I became an advocate. And that I needed to advocate for them and for the world they were going to grow up in um, and that it was unfriendly, to kindly say, to us – and I wanted to do what I could to make it um, a better place for them, a more comfortable, embracing place for them. And I think that, um, and that's what actually led me to the nonprofit sector, actually, to run a gay rights organization. And then I think my third chapter would be something like Champion or something like that, where so I took all, you get to a certain point in your life where you take all of that, that whole story and I, you say plan to matter, right? How do you put it, how, what do you do with it all, right? And there's something for me about uh, either champion or purpose or meaning or something that you, that you have this sort of obligation to take all of those previous chapters and put them into play. To share what you know, then maybe that will help people. And so I, I think it's actually all of that that sort of has led me John and I doing things like podcasts and writing blogs and um, and and coaching uh, nonprofit CEOs. Um, so I, I I think that's I think those would be my chapters. It's interesting too. You you opened up by saying um, I don't think there was a book, and maybe we should reframe it in some ways where we're just like if you're because. Maybe your life isn't a book yet, but it's always a story. Yes. And so when you said that, I'm thinking, I picture someone like furiously writing on pages and sliding them under like a loose floorboard, right? But the story still exists, but maybe the book doesn't yet. Yeah. And like, let's face it, some of the most moving pieces of, of literature and writing in the world were hidden for a long, long time until later on they, they were discovered, right? So always be writing and sharing your story, even if it's just with yourself, even if you're best, better understanding it, because it just, the world may not be ready for the story yet, yeah. but it needs to be written and it needs to be 
uh, recorded and it needs to be acknowledged by the people living it. So that's what I was thinking when you said there wasn't a book yet. I'm like, yeah, but there was a story. Yeah, there totally was a story. There totally was a story. I also like that you referred to it. You said I felt, you know, I I ran a gay rights organization. I'm like, did you just refer to it with Glad as a gay rights organization? (laughs) Like, thanks for the humility right there. But I I think you're talking about one of the gay rights organizations there too, right? So Yeah. um, And, and you know, what's interesting, and this leads into your Ted talk too, is that for me, the sort of aha moment of, oh, I should go and do something like that came as a result of the, um, the decision in our case and people I didn't know emailing me and calling and saying, thank you for doing that because now we just have to feel fill out paperwork and our family will be safe. And it's really cheesy to say it, but it really made me feel like one person can really, well, in this case, three people can really make a difference. Um, And I I think that's a good segue to your TED Talk because- I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead, Drew. Before uh, we go on, there is one thing I wanted to share with listeners there that you said uh, that I can encourage. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. It's fine. Everybody out there who is moved by someone who sees someone online and you think, I'm so glad that they stepped up to take a bullet that for whatever reason, I'm not writing a note, sending a letter. uh, And it's so easy now with social media to that person just saying there is somebody out there that was impacted by what you just did is a game changer. If you're listening and somebody out there, and it doesn't have to be something like what what happened there is you fought a court battle to protect families. But if someone has created art that has moved you, if someone has taken a step that has inspired you or strengthened you or empowered you, or if somebody is being attacked in a way that makes you feel that could just as easily be me, but they stepped up, uh, send them a note. Because yeah. you said it right there. You still remember that. I do. And we often think they're not going to read it. But for everybody out there, we if, you, if we're going through something and we're sharing, uh, whether it's our art or our struggle or an authentic part of who we are, send them a note, just let them know. My little sister uh, was just, you know, the victim of one of those online mobs for a decision she made. And I've been calling her and saying, how are you doing? And all she talks about are the individuals who sent them notes, Yeah. who have said, we're on your side. Yep. So I just wanted to say before we move on, what you just said is something I want to encourage everybody out there. Think right now about somebody you're seeing online that in some way you want to let them know someone's got their back, it means the world. Um, uh, uh, yes, it, uh, it totally does. And it also creates, yes, it means the world, but it's more than that, Drew. It actually, it, it not is an incentive for, to me. Maybe that's a little bit, but it just reminds you, at, both the writer and the reader, that the world is really quite a generous place. Maybe yeah. that maybe that's maybe that's how I think about it. Um, let's talk about your TED Talk for just a minute, and I'm not going. To, we're not going to talk through your TED Talk because there'll be a link in the show notes. At, at, at its essence, it is a story about a small moment of generosity that reverberated in all kinds of ways you were not expecting, that you didn't plan, and that you didn't even know about until years later. Um, I think. Everyone wants a TED Talk with a gazillion views. I I do. I actually am thinking about doing a TED Talk called How I Screwed Up My TED Talk. Um, I'm curious about um, the, not the recipe, but I guess I want to know 
Were you surprised that it took off the way that it did? Because there are a gazillion TED Talks. I'm still surprised that it took off the way that it did. Uh, And as a professional speaker, I think I've only watched it seven or eight times because (laughs) as a professional speaker, it is a very poorly delivered speech. But it is delivered with a tremendous amount of energy. And heart. And the story is good. And But as a speaker, if you watch it, I do an eight and a half minute talk in six minutes or so. Uh, I don't take a breath in that thing. Correct. But I'm completely surprised. Also, for what it's worth, it didn't end up on TED for a year. Uh, I did that in September of 2010 in Toronto. It was posted on the TEDx Toronto YouTube page. Yep. Got about 10,000 views. It was, you know, it was well received. I was so excited about hitting 10,000 views that I donated, you know, I said, I'm going to donate a certain amount of money to uh, a charity that Ted chooses because that was a life goal for me to put something out there that hit 10,000. Yep. Two days later, I got a call saying it's going on the main Ted site on a Friday. And by Monday, 250,000 people had seen it and it just took off from there. I had no idea. It's funny. I was not going to tell that story because when I got the opportunity to speak, they said, you have six minutes. And I said, I can't introduce myself. In six <laughs> I was just going to say, I've actually talked to you twice now. Six yeah. minutes is a big constraint for you. And, I, I, and so I called my best friend and I said, um, I don't know what to say. And he says, tell the lollipop story, you idiot. People love it. And I said, I can't. It doesn't have enough gravitas. This is the TED event. And he said, you need to get the over yourself. He said, your whole thing is about how we take something that is simple and powerful and we make it into something big and intimidating. And you're not going to tell the most impactful story you have because you think it doesn't make you sound smart enough. Get over yourself and go do it. And it was my friend who kicked me in the ass and said, you are about to do the wrong thing because you don't have enough faith in who you are. They said they didn't invite you so you should, because of what story you might tell. They invited you because of the stories you do tell. Now go do it. <laughs> and there's something powerful about having the guts to look at your friend and say, you are going to make a decision that's bad for you, not because you're stupid, but because you don't believe in yourself. Right. And I'm not going to let you do it. And so, yeah, I'm surprised and I'm internally grateful that I had a friend who was willing to tell me, uh, don't be an idiot. This is what's going to matter. Um, <clears throat> in... Uh, uh, in all spheres of your life, you've actually been quite open about personal struggles that you have had. And um, it's clear that they have informed your view of the world. And um, there are people that have all kinds of struggles and they, and they define them in, in, in not necessarily in a positive way. But they, your struggles have defined you in in a, in a very uplifting way. And I just actually wondered if there were as sort of what you call everyday leadership moments that you experienced during some of those struggles that, um, that were, you know, that were motivators that lifted you up. Without a doubt. I think that a big part of my work is it's called day one leadership, my company, because I've had a lot of day ones and, you know, I'm a, I'm in recovery for alcohol addiction uh, I'm bipolar. Uh, I was 320 pounds and lost 100 pounds in a year. So all of these things involve having to make changes. And the end result of what you ho- where you hope to get comes from consistency. And leadership's not in the big things. It's in the consistent things. Yeah. So my work is focused on, okay, 
what are the non-negotiable behaviors that we put into every day of our lives? And that really is weighted in some of the principles, for instance, in 12-step programs. It's a fundamental premise. Yep. What matters are today's decisions. Yesterday's don't matter. The futures can't intimidate you. The focus has to be on what you do today. The idea being that from the time I get up to the time I go to bed, priority number one, excuse me, is to not have a drink. And yes, along the way, there have been these moments that, that remind me that I try to tell people that the reason we focus on individual days is that it forces you to be consistent. If your leadership is only measured by whether or not you have an impact on someone else or yourself today, well, then your leadership doesn't exist if you don't do something today. You can't say, well, earlier this week I did it. That's not how your mindset works. And for me, it's those moments of impact along the way that have truly mattered. And what I, I guess the message I want to put out to individuals here is that your story can be that moment of impact for somebody going through something profoundly difficult. Um, I had, I remember after the woman I loved, she, we, we lost her, she died by suicide after a sexual assault. And I remember I didn't cry for weeks afterwards. And one of the things I think that gets us, it's not our emotions, it's how we judge ourselves for the ones we're having. Uh -huh. I should be crying more. I should be crying less. I shouldn't be laughing right now. She's still gone. And I remember driving in Idaho, of all places, listening to podcasts. And there's a podcast called The Moth, which is a magnificent yep. storytelling podcast. Yep. And there was a chaplain from the National Park Service who was doing who was speaking about some of her experiences on how children deal with grief and what we can learn from them. And towards the end of this story, this woman says, grief is just love facing up to its oldest enemy. And there was something about that phrase that was exactly what I had to hear to finally just pull the car to the side of the road and cry for like half an hour. But it was someone else who never met me and probably never will, who had told this story, I don't know, two years earlier at an event that was then recorded and put out. Right. And that moment is what hit me and gave me that moment of strength when I was dealing with that profound grief, which also meant that I'm fighting with not drinking, which also means I'm fighting with not, you know, relying on any of the things that had given me toxic support, yep. alcohol and uh, reckless, reckless behavior and food. And so that's an example, I think, if anyone's listening, because I always want to try to pull these stories and take them back to why does it matter to the people listening? Yep. Share your story. Share the things that make you seem vulnerable. Because people say have said to me, you know, it, it's courageous to talk openly about the fact that you're an alcoholic and the fact that you're bipolar uh, and your struggles with your weight, which have returned as the pandemic goes. And <laughs> I, I, Thank you. I appreciate it. But... I'm a straight white dude born in Canada who has financial independence. There are fewer consequences for me being authentic and open than any other group in society. And if we're going to make it safe for people to be open about who they are, the most privileged people have to be able to do it or have to, have to do it first, not be able, we are able, have to do it first to lay the groundwork for that. Because the attacks that can be leveled at us while still damaging are nothing compared to the attacks that can be leveled at other groups. And so share your stories. Be, vulnerability isn't weakness. Vulnerability is openness. Yep. And for a long time, I was taught, and a lot of us are, that if you want to impress people, 
The key is to get them to look at you and say, oh, wow, I can't do that. I think the key to empowering people isn't to find a way to make them say, oh, wow, I can't do that. It's to find a way to make them say, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one hurt by that. I yep. thought I was the only one afraid of that. I thought I was the only one hiding that. Yep. That's such a, every time you put your story out into the world, it is a moment of leadership, but it, I lost my favorite high school teacher a year and a half ago and I called him up just a few, and we knew he was dying. He had pancreatic cancer. He'd fought it off twice and pancreatic cancer though is, we'll get, it's just this relentless, relentless disease. It is. And I called him and I told him when I was writing my book that right before I did the final edit, I did something that he had taught me in grade 10 English class. I ran a search and replace for the word that. And then I reread the book and I only put it back in when the sentence stopped making sense. But he told me to do that 20 some years before. And I said, I just wanted you to know the last edit done on the book was yours. Hmm. And he said, that's the thing about being an educator. You're not giving lessons. You're dropping depth charges of insight. <laughs> and depth charges sometimes have to float down for a long time before they go off. And your your stories out there, everybody, of failure, of hurt, of feeling alone, of battling things you've been hiding, those are depth charges of strength for other people. That woman, she knew she was telling a good story. She knew she was telling a story that mattered. That's why she was telling it. Yep. But she didn't know some guy on a back road highway in Idaho two years later would finally have the opportunity to kind of say goodbye because of one line that she said. So share your stories. It's really important. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. So we are having a conversation about everyday leadership with Drew Dudley. Uh, Drew Dudley uh, has uh, a very impressive resume. Uh, he is one of the most dynamic speakers in the world and talks about leadership in, I think, a very, very interesting way. He's also the best-selling author of this is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. And he has one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Drew, I want to give people a little bit of an appetizer of the kind of work that you do and the sort of the precepts of your book. And uh, I always like my listeners who are nonprofit leaders, board and staff, to leave my uh, podcast feeling like they have something they can put into action, something they can chew on, um, something they can share. And um, when you talk about your sort of the, the concepts of everyday leadership, you talk about these, um, about um, a couple of key things. And I wondered if you could touch on each of them briefly just to, to give people a little bit of a, as I said, an appetizer. The first thing that you talk about um, is understanding the power of creating a personal leadership philosophy. I want to know what a personal leadership 
philosophy looks like? Because I think I should have one, and I don't know if I do. Yeah, I mean, the personal leadership philosophy is a principle that you use to make final the toughest final decisions, all right? So hopefully you don't always have to use it as the final arbiter, but usually when we have to make a big decision and we can't be sure of which one it is, there is a principle to which you need to be able to pivot that says, ultimately, this is the criteria I use to make tough decisions. An example specifically for mine is when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person who I want to be do in this situation and then do that. Ah, okay. That is actually tattooed on the inside of my left forearm, which means that when it's really time, when it's so easy to compromise your values in a moment, it is literally inked into my body. Also, when it's on the inside of your forearm, you can't have a drink without staring directly at that <laughs> And so I, you'll notice people have- uh, So what does the tattoo people, actually say? Pardon me? What does the tattoo actually say? What would the man I want to be do? So it's a it's a summary of it. You'll notice if you ever go to a restaurant or a bar with me, because look, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but you go out to restaurants and bars. Sure. People will notice I roll up my sleeves because there are tattoos on the inside of both of my arms just to remind me of who I want to be and how close I am to things that destroy me. And so that's a personal leadership philosophy. If you're looking for more information, everybody, there's a book called The Leadership Challenge by Kuzis and Posner who dive into a personal leadership philosophy and the ideas behind it. But ultimately, it means taking a step back and saying, to where am I going to pivot when, the, when it's the final decision and I don't know which way to go? Um, someone I know says, people over profit is his personal leadership philosophy. Uh, the world for my kids is another person's personal leadership yes. philosophy. Um, uh, value over consequence is another person's leadership philosophy because often the often the decisions that are most consistent with your personal leadership philosophy are not the ones that avoid consequences or allow you to take the money, keep the job, stay in the relationship. But they're always the ones you're happiest you made five years from now. And so it's always, most of us use a single criteria to make decisions because we're doing it unconsciously. And that is which one of these options will avoid the most consequences right now. Yeah. And the challenge is avoiding consequences often means violating values. Yep. And so it's really about coming down to recognizing that often the most important decisions in your life will come with consequences, but they will almost always be the, ha the decision you're happiest you made five years from now. So the Make every decision in your life like you're standing in front of a room full of people you respect explaining the decision five years from now. Look at every decision like that as opposed to, oh, I have to make it now. And a lot of the noise surrounding your decision-making will fall away. Um, I love that. And I think it is actually a ter terrific lens um, for thinking about a sort of a leadership philosophy. How does that intersect? You also talk about values-based decision-making. They, they clearly intersect. Are they the same or different? They're a little bit different. They, they feed into each other, right? Like none of these things are standalone. Mm -hmm. A values-based decision-making is a, a process, a three-step process for me, which is uh, one, identify the values that you want to define you. In the book, I go into a lot of that. I got a couple of TED Talks online that, that dive into the process. Right. But what are the values you, you want to drive you? If someone followed you around for 30 days without your knowledge, and I asked them based only on their behaviors, what values are most important to this person? To what values do they pivot when they make the most difficult yep. personal and professional decisions? What are those values? And then I want you to imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, 
uh, English is not my first language. I, that word, integrity, doesn't exist in my language. Honor doesn't exist in my language. Could you explain what it means in the simplest English terms possible and start your answer with the phrase, a commitment to? So integrity is a commitment to what? Uh, accountability is a commitment to what? We throw value words around all the time and we cannot define what they actually mean. It's just accepted that integrity means good. Right. And the problem is if you don't define something, if you don't make it into a target, you have no idea when you hit it, which means a lot of the time you're living the values you care about the most, those moments are, are going by like unrecognized and uncelebrated by you. And it's celebrations that like, give us momentum, that give us strength, that give us pride, right? Like celebrations in our lives and organizations do that. And setting goals is basically planning celebrations. And we set all these goals for our organizations and for our fundraising and for our financial lives. And leadership is spending just as much time and, and just as many resources setting and chasing goals for your daily behavior and character. Right. So values-based decision-making. These are the values for which I wish to stand. These are the definitions of those values. Right. And when you created your list of values and your definitions, what you created is a set of criteria for decision-making. Yep. And values are only values when they're used as criteria for decision-making. Yes. And if they are not thought about as you make personal, professional, and organizational decisions, if you are not thinking about your values and using them as the criteria to make those decisions, they're not values. They're just stuff that looks good on your website or like pinned on the wall of the office bathroom or wherever the hell, or on an election sign, right? right. Integrity, honor, what, oh, shut up. All right. Like, <laughs> but that's value-based decision-making. Well, because and, once you do those two things, yep. here are the options, here are the values. Yep. Which one of these options most lives up to those values? That's values-based decision-making, but it's impossible to do if you don't have the criteria with which to evaluate the options. And most of us don't. We just use what, what will avoid the most consequences right now. And that's consequence-based decision-making, which is easier and usually less painful than value-based decision-making. But every time you violate your values to make a decision, a little piece of you chips away and maybe the rest of the world never knows about it, but you always will. So it's so interesting, Drew, because when organizations, nonprofit organizations, uh, sit down to start to think about where they are headed, um, I, I <clears throat> they often call it strategic planning, but I I prefer thinking about strategic visioning and a, a vision for the the destination you want to go to with your organization? What is the impact you want to have in the world two or three years from now as a result of whatever it is you plan? Um, so I'm not about work plans and I'm not about key performance indicators. Like I think we get too far into the weeds and um, I, I borrowed or stole from Jim Collins who has written about strategic visioning. And one of the most important pieces of that process is defining your values. And it is one of the things that most often nonprofit organizations kind of ride through like, okay, mission, vision, values. Okay, now what's the plan, right? When in fact, we call them, when, when we do this work, we don't call it, we don't call them values, we call them guiding principles, 
right? These are the things that guide our, that will guide us on our journey. And they are the things that help us decide what to say yes to and what to say no to, because they are these, these, again, guiding principles that we hold to on the journey to the destination. And so um, if there's a message for the listeners from me, Joan, today, it's what Drew is talking about, which is values-based decision-making. It's not just some woo-woo thing. And it is not something to just sort of gloss over when you do strategy work. It's almost the thing. It's those guardrails that, um, that, that give you um, yeah, they're, they're, they give you the strength to make the kinds of decisions that are in keeping with the values that you hold dear. Um, so I, I, I am all about values decision-making, and I think that it is, it's actually because nonprofit organizations somehow treat that as something we have to do, sort of got to get through rather than dig deep into. It's for the uh, website, right? Yeah, like, or honestly, something. Are, are it's like a, or it's for a grant proposal or it's something, it's a, it's a yeah. box you have to check, right? Mission, vision, values is sometimes like a, a straw in a drink box, right? Like <laughs> crucial for that weekend, right? Yep. Like you need it, but the, the, as soon as the weekend is over or whatever meeting is over, it gets tossed away. It, it's, it, that is what those are so much. And, and I agree. It's, Hey, the way I looked at it too, when you do strategic planning is the values are the final decision maker right. and you all agree on that ahead of time. And so you say, all right, here are the values. We're not going to worry about them right now. We are going to generate a ton of different options for what we could do, but then you have to narrow it down. And so ultimately we all agree ahead of time that when it comes time to narrow it down, we are going to look at the options available and we are going to pick the one and we are going to discuss it in this matter. All right, which one of these approaches best lives these values? And sometimes it's not the one we are most excited about. Right. But when you use that and you agree ahead of time, look, we're not going to shoot down stuff as it comes up. We're going to consider all of these options. But at some point, we're going to have to pit them against each other. We have limited resources and time. We have to pick which specific initiatives to do. All right, before we're allowed to leave this room, we have to compare everything we just suggested and every plan that we have we have to be able to articulate how it lives to these values. And if it doesn't, you shouldn't be doing it. And you, what you've done is you've either convinced yourself you have to do something that isn't value-based or whatever it is that you're being forced into isn't value-based. Before you leave a strategic planning session, you had better be able to identify how each decision you made strengthens or adheres to or raises in profile a particular value of your organization, not just because that's what you're supposed to be doing, but because your values will not become a part of your culture of your organization until they are constantly referenced. Not only well decisions are made, but as executives pass on decisions, this is what gets me. Organizations will come out and say, we're doing this differently, or we're really pleased to announce this initiative, or we're restructuring in this way. And at no point in their explanation of what they're doing, do they stop and say, here is how each one of these decisions is reflective of our values. Yes. Unless your values are referenced both in the meetings as part of the decision-making process and in the communication of why decisions are being made to individuals who weren't in the room, the values don't become a fundamental part of who you are. Then you can also use them as part of the evaluative process. So when you sit down with people, don't just ask them, 
what worked well, what's not, what do you need to make your job better? Ask what barriers are you finding in this workplace to you living your core values? Yeah. And then also what barriers are you seeing to the organization living their values instead of what's going right and what's going wrong? Let's look at identifying barriers to value realization. And that makes it a little bit different in how you're evaluating. Identifying your values isn't just a nice thing to do. It has to be involved in strategic planning. It's then involved in messaging on organizational decision-making, and it needs to be integrated fully into how processes and employment experiences, 360 evaluations, whatever, are actually evaluated. Strategically, messaging-wise, and evaluative-wise, all of these things have to talk about values. Otherwise, they're just something that looks good on your website. Um, Be better than that. Yeah, the, um, yeah. That, right, as as opposed to the thing, the thing you have to box, you have to check. The values are um, actually a, an anchor. They're actually the centerpiece of the work that you do. Very interesting. So we just have a, a time for just one or two more questions. Um, yeah, sorry about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> we had uh, a lot more. I, I was. Ta- I, I think I was talking a lot too. So it's fine. Um, um, so I love the framing of everyday leadership. It's not, you know, uh, sadly, it's not often how people do think of it. They look in the world around them and they see divisive politics and they see elected officials and, and they see things that really discourage them about leadership. I wondered if you think that it um, dissuades people from leadership. Or do you think it makes, do you think people are afraid of being leaders? Yes, I think those are two different things. I do believe that the way we see leadership in the world uh, dissuades people from doing it because I believe that the individuals attracted to the power that comes with political leadership are people who are generally not value-driven people. They're they're power-driven people. Right. Uh, And the ones who are value-driven people see that there's no place for them. I think people are scared of leadership for totally different reasons. I mean, I think they could be dissuaded because they see how toxic it is and that you can't stand up and suggest, here's what we should do unless you declare what team you're on. And then you actually can't make any decisions that could possibly do anything but make the other team look bad. Right. So the whole idea of working together is enough to be a violation of your team, right? So... Uh, I think people are afraid because I think they're afraid of, for a couple of reasons. One, they don't think they have enough answers. Hmm. But leadership really isn't about answers. No. It's fundamentally about asking incredibly good questions. Oh, that's uh, yes. Yeah, you could just you could we could actually just bottle that one phrase oh. and just call it a day. Yes, the, yeah, the, and, it's and, all about the and, questions. And five-year-olds are great at those questions too. You want to learn how to ask great leadership questions? Look at five-year-olds who are relentless. I told one once, uh, he asked what a speech was, and I, and I somehow came up with the answer, speech is an opportunity to change minds. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, okay, how do you know you should? <laughs> and I was like, shut oh. the hell up. And we need to get you out of this classroom before we wreck you, because you're asking all the right questions <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, totally. But uh, I, I think that people feel that they'll screw up. Yeah. And I think that we've been taught that leadership is about power and influence, And I think finally that the, I think social media has made us all feel unsafe everywhere in our lives, not just online. Yeah. Like people talk about online safety. It doesn't matter. The toxicity and the ability for people to be destroyed because of the worst five seconds of their life 
I think has made every single person in the developed world feel less safe, whether or not they're online or not. Yeah. And I believe that it has always been easy for people, I forget what the quote is, that you'll usually find the people throwing the stones are in the stands, not in the arena or mm-hmm. something to that yeah. effect. Yeah, I yeah, butchered yeah. that. It is <laughs> I so think you e- did actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's the concept, right? Yeah. Is that quite often the people who are screaming the loudest at people are the ones who are simply not in, in the, the fight. Yep. Um, and I think it's so easy to feel good about yourself by ragging on other people. And I've been guilty of this myself. So I think that what one of the problems with the world today is that it is a it is a national and global sport to destroy people you've never met to make yourself feel better. And people have been doing that since the dawn of time, but now it is easier and more widespread and more impactful than any time in human history. The toxicity of the insecurity of humans has made it so that many people are afraid to step up and say anything. Yeah. And that's why I admire even more the people who will. Uh, And, you know, to me, that's why I reframe leadership for people, because I think that as long as people think leadership has to be being the center of attention, we will not have some of the great people willing to see themselves as leaders. If we reframe leadership as being about creating powerful moments of interpersonal impact, moments of compassion, moments of grace, moments of recognition and forgiveness, those are the most powerful things that we do. And we don't call them powerful. We don't call them leadership. You know what we call them? We call them the little things. It's They're not little. They are not little. They are simple. And simple doesn't mean little. No. And as long as we can reframe leadership as, or a type of leadership, it's not the only form of leadership. Not everyone can or should be CEO or senior executive or wants to be. But there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And that is creating moments of interpersonal impact. And my work is about teaching a behavioral psychology process on how, but more so on the broader message. It's about when we recognize that as a form of leadership, it opens up leadership to masses of people for whom it wasn't an ideal, for whom it wasn't held out as a possibility. Because what we've got in this world right now is we've created this world where the vast majority of leadership on the planet comes from people who do not think that they're leaders. Right. And most of the of the power on earth is inaccessible to most of the people on earth almost every source of power on the planet has systemic barriers between most of the people on the planet and that power but there are no barriers between our individual ability to have there's no barriers to our ability to have these moments of interpersonal impact it's not the only form of leadership but it is the broadest form And right now we live in a world where power is isolated and people kill others and marginalize others and fight like hell to keep power out of their hands. And unfortunately, sometimes they convince us that they've done it, but nobody gets to take away your power. One of the things that's key to my idea of leadership is an acknowledgement that we are not always in charge of what we get to do every day, but we're always in charge of who we are. And nobody gets to take that away from us. But if we don't flex that power, we don't give ourselves that evidence, we forget we have it. Uh, We're going to leave it right there. Um, uh, I have uh, found this conversation to be really thought-provoking. And uh, if it has given you a nugget about thinking about your own leadership, then it's been a good day at the office for me and for Drew. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. I admire you so much. And 
Best of luck to everybody. Keep Fa safe. Thank you very much, Drew. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.